Welcome back to 52 Founders. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and with me this week is Mustafa El Said, co-founder of Autonoma Technologies. Autonoma's mission is to bring the next revolution in manufacturing by making robotic automation affordable and simple, and it's a great example of why I'm bullish on London's startup ecosystem. Mustafa's background in architecture and design shined through in the company's flagship product, Ava, an elegant, simple, and affordable robotic arm. Ava's myriad use cases and ability to enhance, not replace human capabilities makes Automata a startup to watch. But enough from me, let's hear from Mustafa himself. All right, well, Mustafa, thank you so much for being on my show today. I'm so excited to have you. Yeah, likewise. So start by telling us about Automata and what it is. So Automata is a two-year-old robotic startup based in London. Uh, I co-founded uh, Automata in 2015 with my co-founder, Suryant. With the starting frustration that um, we had to use industrial robotics in our previous job, and the common perception of industrial robots in, in the public are these super advanced high-tech machines that are used to build cars. And, uh, you know, you see them in factories like Tesla's and BMW, these really bright orange, super fast moving machines. But in reality, they're actually very obtuse, very hard to use uh, pieces of technology. And uh, we very quickly came to the conclusion that the two things that are keeping them that way are the software used to run them is really, really uh, opaque and they're very expensive to use. So people don't really take them on and don't really learn to use them. So that was the starting uh, frustration of the company. And that led to us thinking about um, developing um, an affordable and easy to use robotics platform, which would make it easier for people to adopt robotics and use them in more creative ways. Um, At least that's the way uh, the company was founded, the idea on which the company was founded. So has it progressed since then, since you just, you know, alluded to that? Yes, it has progressed, um, especially our thinking towards who would be interested in the product. So uh, our idea was to make an an industrial robot at a very affordable price and very easy to use, thinking that people like us um, would be interested in using them. And just to qualify that statement, uh, we're both uh, designers by training. Uh, we're actually both trained as architects, and um, we were self-taught programmers and self-taught, uh, you know, uh, computational geometry stuff like that. So we used to work with a lot with 3D printing and machining, and that's where our interest in robotics came in. So we thought if we made a product like this, uh, people like ourselves would be interested in it. And actually, what happened once we started showing people the product that we were developing we started seeing that the traditional users of robotics, aka manufacturers, were super interested in this. Um, Even though they tend to be very large companies that can afford the big robots, uh, what quickly became clear is if the price is right, there's tons of use cases for affordable automation in industry. So, you know, price aside, let's talk about those use cases because I'm looking on your website, I'm seeing what the, it looks you know, fairly small. I can see the hand for sale. Mm-hmm. What are the use cases mm-hmm. um, that you see happening and did any of them surprise you? So uh, just quickly on, on in terms of the product, we started with the idea that the arm, the arm we designed should be the, to the proportions of a human. 
And there's mm-hmm. a very simple reason for that, which is the workplace that the robots we envisaged would work in were, are currently designed for humans. So um, if you think about your standard factory floor, the distances between where the uh, person is standing and the part they're working on is, is designed to the dimensions of a human. So the robot should be designed to those dimensions so it can be as easy to plug and play as possible, so to speak. And um, in terms of use cases, yeah, we we were pretty surprised by, by what's come up. Um, a lot of it is what you would traditionally expect a robot f- to do. Um, you know, so a big part of the market is something called uh, machine tending, um, which is basically manufacturing has tons of these really advanced machines. But if you think about it, they're limited by the person loading and unloading them. So if you couple them with another robot or another machine, so to speak, you are, you allow them to work in a much more efficient fashion. So that, that was a use case we really understood people would be interested in. What we didn't expect were um, the use cases where people are looking to augment their processes with the robot. Um, things like fl- flipping switches, um, lifting lids, um, moving hatches around. Uh, in the pharmaceutical industry, we've seen a ton of interest, uh, interest in uh, what's called pipetting, which is putting fluids in test tubes. Um, so things that you don't think of a robot doing because they're so uh, manual. But since the, the robot is quite small and easy to use, people are thinking in a very creative fashion about Huh, maybe I do. I maybe I can use a robot in this area of the business. Yeah, I love that. I think it's really interesting. You know, I always find it interesting when any founder has this idea of the use case for the company, and then it, oftentimes you are surprised by those workarounds. Um, but for this, what I love hearing you say is that it, it seems to work in tandem with the human operators and not necessarily replacing mm-hmm. entire people. It's really mm-hmm. just making them more efficient. And and that's the best mm-hmm. use case I always see for robotic uh, robotics and automation in general. Sure. Uh, so actually, on that note, um, the movement or the field of technology that's really really taking off in physical robotics or in actuation robotics is something called collaborative robotics. Um, and it is what it sounds like. It's 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 a robot collaborating with a human operator rather than totally automating the use case. Um, it's a it's a term that's slowly, slowly becoming defined uh, in the industry technologically. It's been around as a concept, I would say, since 2005. Uh, but it's the idea of uh, smaller, friendlier robots that uh, a human operator can feel safe working alongside. Uh, and we very much so see our product in that line, that it's, it's a collaborative product. It, it's not there to completely take over automation of the task, but it does augment the, that, that task and make it a lot more efficient. When you say friendlier, do you think that the, the exterior of the robots has to be designed in a friendly and inviting way to humans to make them want to work in tandem with it? Or do you think, you know, I, I'm just imagining it, if it was like a more... You know, yours seems quite lovely. It's pretty bright and friendly, yeah. you know, yeah. and I'm wondering if it was like more clunky, if it would be more intimidating to people. Sure. Yeah, it's 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 both sides of that coin. So oh. uh, the easier the easier one to measure is, is the technological side, because there you have certain things you can definitely do to make it safer. Uh, primarily along, sides of, along, along the lines of um, designing the geometry of the robot in a certain way that it cannot physically harm someone's 
due to, for example, uh, stopping any opportunity for someone's hand to get jammed in the robot. For example, mm-hmm. uh, what's called pinch, what's called pinch points. Um, adding adding redundant sensors that measure when the robot is experiencing forces it shouldn't experience, and therefore shutting down, which would traditionally correlate to it colliding with something. So there's there's the kind of technological measures, but then there's the less clear ones to measure, but we very much so believe in them, which is what you were talking about, which is things like the design of the product, uh, the color of the product, you know, it's something we inadvertently did, you know, because we used to 3D print the exterior of the product and, you know, we just had white material in our 3D printers. But very quickly, we saw people responding to it in a very different way. Giving the product a name um, is something yeah. that we, we did, again, inadvertently, just as something, but we started seeing people resp- responding to it. You know, these uh, factory managers who are like hardcore engineers referring to the product as a her, calling it by her name. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very um, subtle difference, but we believe, yeah, that, that definitely adds to that friendliness layer to the product. Yes, definitely. I agree. I find that really interesting. And so what is it like growing a startup in London? What are the benefits you see to being in London? Well, there's, there's two things, one being a startup and then the other one being a robotics slash hardware startup. Being a startup generally, uh, I, get, I, I think London is, is a great place to set up because there's um, an increasingly large community of people you can turn to or events you can attend that just help you um, continuing to build your business and continuing to build your ideas. Of course, there's an investment ecosystem here now that's becoming quite mature that allows you to um, you know, get your product and business up and running due to the investments that are available. There's a huge concentration of talent in London. That's something we've definitely benefited from at Automata, both being a startup and specifically being a hardware startup, because uh, that's something me and my uh, co-founder, Suyansh, have been quite adamant about, that we would like to stay within the traditional confines of London as much as possible. A lot of times what hardware businesses do here is they go to the hardware hubs of the UK, such as Cambridge or Bristol, um, which are towns or cities outside of London. But by staying within central London, we attract, we're able to attract a lot of talent who would not regularly find this kind of hardware job in the areas they live. You know, they, they don't have to commute or they don't have to move to get a hardware job. They're actually finding that, hey, I can do an interesting hardware job in an interesting startup environment in central London. So th- that's been hugely beneficial for us in terms of attracting talent. Yes, I find that really interesting, even though it is nice that you have those other hubs as well. You know, when you look at the U.S., we're such an enormous country. And so, you know, the U.K., even though Cambridge, it's not extremely far if you ever needed to get more talent, that you do have that resource there. Yeah, exactly. But I also like that you're, you know, utilizing London talent in particular. So, but let's switch gears and talk about you. And so where are you originally from? Where did you grow up? Okay, that, that's a that's a two-part answer because uh, <laughs> traditionally most people would just say uh, I'm Egyptian by nationality, mm-hmm. um, but I was born and raised in Dubai. But you cannot be from Dubai, you, so I'm Egyptian, but I'm born and raised in Dubai. So, what did your parents do for a living in Dubai? My parents are the stereotypical Egyptian couple, so uh, a doctor and engineer. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, my mom was a doctor and my dad was a civil engineer. 
Ah, uh, so so not too far off from you. Did you focus on engineering a lot as a kid, or do things with your dad that made you more inclined to want to be an engineer? Uh, no, so so that that that's what I was mentioning. That we actually ended up going. I actually ended up going into design. Um, I studied architecture uh, in undergrad and masters. More specifically, I studied architecture in the in the tradition of design because uh, architecture is one of these disciplines where. Some schools have it under their school of engineering and some schools have it under their school of design. And I, I went to a, a school that architecture was part of the school of design. Got it. So when you were a kid, what did you originally want to be when you grew up? Uh, when I was a kid, what I wanted to be when I grew up was a professional skateboarder. But <laughs> that's, uh, that's besides the point. It's funny you ask. It's nothing. When I think back at it, I I don't think I had very clear goals as a kid. Um, I kind of stumbled onto architecture because you know, growing up in Dubai, there was a lot going on architecturally, and it was clearly an interesting field to get into at that time. But uh, you know, two years into a five-year program, uh, architecture is a, is a discipline that if you if you really get into it, it's a it's a very uh, dripping um, field of study. You know, the, there's a joke a lot of your professors tell you in, in architecture, which is a perfect architect is no is a person who knows a little about a lot. So <laughs> you're expected to branch out. You're expected expected to branch out quite a lot uh, to be a, a good architectural student. So um, that was a very positive experience. So you're in architecture school. You know, you're studying design. How did you guys mm-hmm. come up with this? You know, you you had your first job where you saw this need, but what was that job before? Were you actually using your architecture degree? Yeah, so uh, two things. One is we both studied in a school of architecture here in London for our uh, master's program. Uh, It's a school called the Architectural Association uh, here in London, more specifically something called the Design Research Lab. And that program, uh, the best way to describe it is uh, it's a program looking at how technology should affect design and architecture. Oh, interesting. So so it's very much so a creative technology course. So, you know, the average student in that course might build a 3D printer from scratch throughout the course. Uh, They'll learn, they'll teach themselves to code. Uh, You'll work a lot with computational geometry. So, um, you know, Suryansh, my co-founder's interest very much so quickly became around this idea of uh, he became quite good at geometry and thinking about the, the 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 mathematics of geometry, and that led him to 3D printing and robotics. And my interests were more around developing software because uh, architects and designers are very visual people. So it was a very interesting task to develop software for them, where you're uh, presenting information in very intuitive ways. Um, and that was actually a big part of my first first and only job I took after school, which was with an architecture practice based here in London called um, Zaha Hadid Architects. It's mm-hmm. a very progressive architectural practice where if you look at their work, none of it looks like what you think a building looks like. There's not a straight corner in any of her buildings. We worked in part of a, it was a 400-person office. We worked in a four-person research team where the our job was to kind of figure out how to build the things the office was designing. So that naturally, that was a lot of intersection with uh, programming and programming machines. And that's where we first uh, interacted with industrial robotics. You know, it's funny you say that because 
I'm wondering about the software component to your company and how the mm-hmm. robots actually get set up. So I'd love to hear about that to start. Sure. Uh, we see software, the software components as an equal player in the product we develop uh, because Eva is only as, uh, as useful as her programming is easy, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. So the idea is that it, it should be um, two things apart from the cost factor is that it's easy to use and it's safe. So the easy to use part um, is the interaction between the hardware and the software. So uh, hardware-wise, uh, the robot itself is very lightweight compared to your standard industrial robot. So it's very easy to set up. And uh, the idea, we didn't invent this idea, but we, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's something we use, which is called Teach by Example, which is showing the robot what to do physically in space. Rather than having to explicitly program everything in the software, you can just use the robot to act as a as a way to find the information you want in the physical space. And then once you're on our software product, that is where I would say a lot of our design background came to bear, which is producing a piece of software that's very intuitive, very easy to use. Um, you know, using principles that you don't you wouldn't usually associate to robotic software. You know, robotic software is like a lot of menus, a lot of, uh, you know, command prompt work. And rather than that, it's just a very visual interface with a lot of dragging and dropping and uh, explicit, uh, you know, information being presented to the user that this is going to happen. So it's just um, bringing that package together, making it a lot easier to use. Yes. So your your software then can go beyond, you know, just being useful to engineers, would you say? Yeah, we initially designed it without engineers in mind. Uh, we we initially designed it like if I gave it to a person like like me a year ago, would I be able to use this piece of software? And uh, mm-hmm. it quickly, be, it uh, you know, it quickly became clear that what we designed for ourselves was actually also super useful to those engineers because they could just pick it up and run with it as well. So um, I guess the, the frustration of that robotics were hard to program was more universal than we thought. Yes, I love that. So when did you first start thinking of entrepreneurship? Were you ever nervous about leaving the security of a traditional job? Yes, for sure. Yeah, we started um, thinking about entrepreneurship more as, a, as you know, what are we doing? Um, uh, yeah, completely honestly, it was like, what are we doing with our time now? and you know, this is, you know, the conversations the experience would have together is, you know, ideally this is the most creative and uh, output intensive period of our career. Uh, what do we want to do with this time? Uh, is this, is, or is, is design in architecture the field we feel we can have a voice in something? And, you know, um, Robotics and automation is clearly a conversation everyone is having, both on the production side, on the society side. Uh, It's a conversation we need to have. And we felt that we had something to say about it in terms of we could do this better than what's currently being done. And that was a strong enough impulse for us to uh, get over this uh, insecurity of leaving a, a, a monthly paycheck. I think that's a great way to put it. So it's the point of having you know, something to say in the conversation or just being so annoyed that 
you could be doing better than what's out there that you have to join. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It, it, it's a very strong driving force. Um, you know, when that it's, 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 it's both uh, inspirational and frustrational because you're sitting <laughs> there getting frustrated. You're like, you know, I can be doing this. And, and you know, it, it gets to a point where it's a, it's a silly way to put it, but you wake up uh, in the morning, you get to the office, and the websites you're checking out in the morning are more like uh, things like The Verge or tech websites rather than checking, you know, what's going on in the design architecture community. And, you know, that uh, dichotomy can only last so long before you have to act on it, I guess. And so was that part of the reason that you and your co-founder wanted to join Entrepreneur First was really to learn how to become entrepreneurs? Yeah, I, I think, you know, very quickly into setting up Automata, we figured out that, you know, more or less we had a handle on this product development side of things. We were we were writing software at a good rate, uh, just building robots at a good rate. But, you know, that's one part of it. By making this a viable business and um, understanding how to build a company around this, we, we didn't have exposure to those ideas. So uh, Entrepreneur First was a great platform for that. And so what has surprised you the most, do you think, about being an entrepreneur? I guess the I would say the versatility you have to take on is, is quite surprising. Um, you know, uh, from week to week, uh, month to month, your job description, so to speak, completely can change. That 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 took us by surprise, uh, and it was actually something we've we've had to learn to work and manage. You know, you're you're constantly getting good enough on something to do it well enough to get to the next stage that you can delegate it out, and then you have to learn the next thing to do. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard that 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 description before, but it, it it's definitely something you know, we we've reflected on. No, I I love that. I do think it's something. It seems like there's always more to do. And so I find that one of the skills yeah. you have to learn is which fire to put out and which things can wait until later. Because if you're constantly putting out fires, you know, you'll never get anything done. Yeah, exactly. It's that experience of like, just get good enough to be able to fix it for long enough that you can get to the next stage of the business to delegate that problem to someone else who's, who's taking care of it and then take on the next battle, so to speak. Yes. And so I'm going to use a new question for you. Where do you hope to see uh, Automata in the next five years? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, there's um, two parts to that. One is we really want to see Eva take off in the in the initial use cases and fields that are clearly becoming useful. Uh, she's becoming useful in, which is the production of goods and uh, doing, uh, let's say, doing things on factories. So we really want to see the product take off there in the sense that people no longer see automation as a barrier to entry to something they need to do. It's something they could think about quite easily, both in terms of taking on the capital expenditure to automate, but also that internally they could use their own workforce to use our robots, that you no longer have to go out and get uh, you know, third parties to come in and bring in robots for you. I think that is a feasible five-year goal for us. Um, anything beyond that, it might take a bit longer than five years, but I really think we could be in a place where companies are feeling secure enough and the product is easy enough to use that companies can just buy them off a website and integrate them themselves 
without having to go out to another to, to consultants to integrate for them. And the other Great. thing I would like to see us achieve in five years is very much so in the software layer. There's a lot to leverage there. Robotics is a really uh, interesting field where, you know, what's happening with machine learning is obviously a big part of it, uh, but also user experience design can bring a lot of value to robotics. And I think it's the kind of side of things where a lot of people are not paying attention to it. Uh, And you can actually make use cases possible or make use cases that currently exist much simpler just through user experience design. Coupled with, you know, uh, machine learning and predictive um, implementations in the use case design, you know, that, that, that's a really powerful combination that, you know, within five years, we can just start to leverage. Yes, I completely agree. Uh, I really think that, you know, the design of how these systems work will actually be a good moat of defensibility and, and, and kind of increase user adoption as well. And it's great to hear that you guys are thinking about that. So let's switch yeah. to our, you know, final few fun questions. And so what mm-hmm. is another London startup that you really love? That's a good question. There's a, there's a company uh, you must have heard of, we, uh, I really find interesting, which is called Improbable IO. I think of it in a certain way that if I had stayed on my uh, career path in architecture and design and I hadn't started Automata, that's a place I would love to work. It's a great intersection of uh, design, geometry, uh, machine learning, programming. Uh, I would have definitely applied for a job at Improbable. <laughs> Great. And so if you could interview one founder, who would you most want to interview and why? And there's a company called Form, Formlabs. They, mm-hmm. they make a 3D printer. Uh, we, we see their journey very analogous to the journey we hope to have. So uh, I, I would love to uh, sit down with their founders and, and go through how they did it and their thinking because they, they've achieved in the field of 3D printing and uh, semi-professional 3D printing what we would want to achieve in robotics. Awesome. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. And and thank you for a new answer. So it was so great having you today. And so thanks for taking the time. Really loved learning about Automata. No problem. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap on episode 38. Be sure to check out 52founders.com and follow us on Twitter at 52founders to stay up to date. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you next week for another episode. Thank you.